Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Politics on Draft with me, James Tabor. And me, Kartik Sawney. And uh, the reason why I say this is special is because uh, we are very privileged to have uh, our first academic guest with us, um, who's taken time out of uh, his research to come onto the podcast and have a chat with us. I'll, t- I'll tell you a little bit about him. He's a professor of politics at Queen Mary, specialising in British politics, specifically the centre-right and conservative politics. Uh, Previous publications include the Conservative Party from Thatcher to Cameron, uh, European politics, a comparative introduction amongst many. And he's currently writing a book set out to be released next year, the Conservative Party after Brexit, which we'll talk about a little later. He's also a regular contributor to news programmes and post podcasts for the Myland Institute. Uh, I've built this up massively, but I, I'll, I'll present the wonderful Professor Tim Bell. Welcome to the podcast. Hi there. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. I had my COVID jab yesterday, so <laughs> feeling a little bit under the weather, but uh, hopefully uh, I'll sound reasonably coherent. Yeah, no, you're sa- you're sounding uh, very good now. Um, we always start the uh, the podcast uh, with a little sort of like, what are we drinking now? For, for the for the listeners, it is three o'clock in the afternoon, so I feel like it would be very irresponsible for all of us uh, to start drinking. But I'll start off, uh, Tim. What are you drinking today? Uh, I drink uh, generally in the afternoon, a bit of red bush tea. Actually, oh, so nice. it's non caffeinated. Comes from South Africa. You can put milk in it if you want to, but generally speaking, uh, I don't. And it's got a slightly different flavour to tea, but if you're looking for a kind of non-caffeinated tea-like substance, uh, I'd recommend it. Ooh, very, very nice. I'm always interested in looking for, for new tea. What about yourself, Kartik? I'm actually having some Indonesian coffee recommended to be, my, to be to me by my girlfriend. Um, it's the only instant coffee I ever drink. Um, I know... James, you're a bit of a wine snob. I'm a snob. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's what I'm having. What, you, what about you? I'm having uh, Lipton peach iced tea. So it's a very tea and coffee orientated <laughs> uh, orientated day. Mine's a bit. That's uh, how you know the podcast gone into 14 episodes now. Yeah, anyway, we get right into it. Absolutely, Kartik. You take the reins. So Tim, we were. At a lecture delivered by you to the Myland Institute. Now, we would be keen for you to address that lecture. But before we get into it, you have a book coming out in March 2023, if I'm right. It's called The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I'm not sure I really have to explain to your listeners uh, the turmoil. (laughs) I think that's fairly (laughs) evident. Um, basically, it looks at what's happened to the party after Brexit. So it really begins with David Cameron's resignation and takes you right the way through, actually, to Rishi Sunak's um, accession to the throne, as it were. Uh, the transformation part of it, I guess, is the key uh, question it tries to answer, which is, has the Conservative Party actually moved from being a mainstream centre-right party to become some kind of, if you like, ersatz populist radical right party? Uh, by which I mean a party which, you know, draws a distinction between, if you like, the elites, the blobs, you know, the bitter Ramonas, whatever you want to call them on the one hand, and on the other, uh, the British people, uh, and portrays itself as somehow the tribune uh, of that people against the the chattering classes, uh, and doing that via, you know, some pretty hardline rhetoric on uh, subjects like immigration, uh, law and order, and of course, this war on woke generally. 
Uh, and in some ways, what the book tries to do as it goes through is is look at you know some of that rhetoric and look at how it's employed, look at whether it works or not, and uh, look inside the party so that we look at different levels of the party. So both at you know the grassroots membership, and of course we've done surveys of grassroots party members right across the spectrum. Uh, not just the Conservatives, uh, but also obviously at the you know the elite in the Conservative Party, the Parliamentary Party, and of course uh, those right at the top. And I guess although I, I'm quite keen on you know carving up the party ideologically, as some people like to do, particularly political scientists, I tend to take a rather more, if you like, high politics or instrumental view of of uh, the Conservative Party, so that. I think there are many people within it who essentially use it as a vehicle for their own uh, ambition. So there are a lot of arguments within the Conservative Party over particular issues, uh, particular policies, often actually reflect um, people's uh, ambition as much as anything, rather than any kind of deeply held beliefs. And I guess an illustration of that might be Rishi Sunak, um, in the sense that I find it quite difficult to believe that he actually... Uh, believe some of the kind of war on woke stuff that he talked about during the um, leadership campaign in the summer of 22. Uh, but he feels he needs to say it in order to um, both you know, get to the top and uh, to um, bring voters back to the Conservative Party. That's quite interesting. Um, it's an interesting distinction that you have to need to say those things in order to get to the top. But we're going to come on to the cultural sides of things in just a moment. Um, I want to address uh, elements of the lecture. So my first question is going to be, you, you address the assumption that the Conservative Party is still ideologically divided and therefore ungovernable. Do you think that the Conservative Party is genuinely ideologically divided and therefore ungovernable? Because it seems to me that Rishi Sunak is desperately trying to pander to the ERG right-wing element of the Conservative Party, trying to make it look more ideologically cohesive. Mm. But does that still make it divided? Well, I mean, I think clearly there are these groups within the Conservative Party, and we hear an awful lot about them, these caucuses, if you like, of which the European Research Group, the ERG, is is one. You know, you have the Northern Research Group as well. You have the China Research Group. Uh, you have the Net Zero Security Group. Uh, you have the Common Sense Group. Um, I think they are you know, useful in some ways in the presentation of politics, particularly by journalists, because, uh, you know, they they allow things to be, uh, if you like, um, classified and uh, in some ways uh, more simple. Um, but actually, I think the the Conservative Party is, is rather more complicated than that. I don't think there is necessarily um, any, uh, you know, really hard and fast distinctions between those groups. After all, some people are in, you know, more than one of them. Uh, And I also think it perhaps overstates the extent to which those groups are truly factions, by which I mean that their views on one particular policy therefore map onto a whole set of policies. Uh, Most of them, I think, are fairly single issue groups. Now, that's not to deny clearly there are some people who are, if you like, more conservative than, uh, uh, than others, Um, But I think the difference between many Conservative MPs and probably I'd say most Conservative MPs are differences of degree rather than of kind. 
if you like. So I would argue that most Conservative MPs are, to coin a phrase, bog standard Thatcherites in the sense that they, generally speaking, believe in um, you know lower taxes, uh, keeping a, a, you know a, a cap on public spending wherever possible. Uh, they believe in a smaller state more generally. They believe in you know a fairly kind of nationalistic uh, foreign policy. Uh, they are generally speaking, um, you know, quite hard line on uh, on immigration and on um, law and order. Um, so uh, I think if we if we you know carve up the Conservative Party too much, uh, we forget that and we forget the commonalities, if you like. Uh, now I don't think the Conservative Party is necessarily ungovernable because, as I say, I don't think there are that many very very deep ideological divisions. Although there are divisions over issues. Uh, and I, I would argue uh, as well that you know, for most conservatives, given that's the kind of baseline ideology, um, they spend most of their time concerned about how they're going to get on within the parliamentary party. Are they going to make it to the front bench? And of course, worrying about uh, are they going to be able to hold on to their seat at the next election? And to be honest, uh, for many of them, these you know, more theological arguments uh, very much take a back seat to those two considerations. Now, if um, Rishi Sunak can at least, and, and maybe we'll come on to this, uh, limit you know, the, the, the electoral damage that's been done by Boris Johnson and, of course, by Liz Truss, then to a certain extent, I think he's got much more chance of governing the Conservative Party than some people assume. After all... Um, Given where the Conservative Party is at the moment, given how many times it's changed its leader, I think for most Conservatives, it's basically Rishi or bust now. I don't think that they can uh, change their leader anymore, which means that probably they're going to um, give him a little bit more uh, you know, benefit of the doubt, room for manoeuvre than some people imagine. And I think it's also important to stress that Rishi Sunak is, is one of them. I mean, he's not in the sense... Uh, that David Cameron was, you know, rather distrusted in the Conservative Party, perhaps a little bit too liberal, a little bit too modernising. I mean, Rishi Sunak, I think, makes it fairly clear that, you know, he is uh, uh, one of them and shares their instincts, which I think, you know, will go down well. So, of course, things could blow up on individual issues and there will be some people who object, for example, to the autumn statement and the extent to which it, it, it raises taxation. But I suspect that that will be... Uh, a very small minority, most of them are simply hoping that it restores the government's credibility and in so doing, perhaps helps it either win the next election or at least limit some of the electoral damage that's been done. Yeah, and there was something I, want, I wanted to add on that, which we were, I was going to talk about later on in the, uh, in the podcast, but I thought actually you mentioned Cameron in there as well. Now, obviously, the, the, the current rhetoric that seems to be quite prevalent from the kind of dissenting voices is that, you know, the Conservative Party been in power for 12 years. Has there been any progression? Obviously, those 12 years are 12 very different years. And in some of your older publications, you've you've talked about Cameron often using the coalition as a means to sort of quell those far right voices. But obviously, that they've become quite mainstream within the party. Now, th there's a big argument to say that, you know, Brexit is quite a big reason as to as to why we've seen this change in the last 12 years of a Conservative government. But do you think there are some more sort of internal 
factors within the party that have affected this? Well, I mean, I think Cameron's a very interesting case, really, because by going into coalition, I think he triggered a lot of resentment um, from the backbenches, uh, primarily, and this refers to, to something I was talking about before, because it meant that there were fewer jobs for Conservative MPs. So there were many people who were expecting uh, a front bench place, even if it was Minister for Paperclips, and didn't get it, and therefore actually spent a lot of their time grumbling. And I think the you know the the vote um, by Conservative MPs uh, back in I think it was twenty eleven. Um, you know, so many of them voted to to have a referendum um, when Cameron you know called a three line whip, uh, asking them not to. Uh, I think you know that had a lot to do, obviously, with the issue itself, but also with that resentment. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that you know Conservative MPs would have been quite happy about Europe um, had they won the general election outright in 2010, but I'm not so sure that we would have moved to a, 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 a referendum as quickly as we we did. Mm. Now, um, I mean, yes, there are other undercurrents. I think Brexit has probably made the the, the situation. Um, more uh, problematic in the sense that because it was essentially a kind of fantasy Brexit, you know, it was a have our cake and eat it Brexit, which Theresa May quickly found out wasn't actually going to be possible. Uh, And then uh, Boris Johnson um, promised that it was meant that the leadership of the Conservative Party was, you know, very badly undermined during her period uh, and brought into um, you know, office, uh, Boris Johnson, who was, you know, this sort of one man moral vacuum or minefield, however you want to put it. Um, and of course, that then caused a whole lot of problems for the Conservative Party uh, electorally. Uh, uh, and, you know, then that feeds into Conservatives' concerns about their um, seats and whether they can hold on to them. So that destabilises the party uh, as much as any kind of ideological arguments over over Brexit. Now, I'm not denying, you know, that, that some of these people in the ERG are zealots and true believers, but they are actually, relatively speaking, um, you know, a, a fairly small group, even of the ERG. I mean, if you look at the so-called Spartans, who you know voted against May's deal three times? We're, we're talking about twenty-eight people. Mm. Um, you know, we're not talking about a, a huge number of Conservative MPs. Most of them, in the end, you know, capitulated and voted for uh, her deal. So, and again, if you look at the other side of the the Brexit argument in the Conservative Party, I mean, yes, Boris Johnson did kick out you know twenty-one um, Conservatives. Some of them got the whip back. Um, but, you know, even they weren't, uh, for the most part, you know, diehard Remainers who wanted a second referendum. They just didn't want no deal. Most Conservative MPs and a majority of them voted for Remain, you know, in 2016 um, during the, the, the 2017 Parliament, you know, ad- admitted that, you know, Brexit was going to happen and um, supported it. So uh, I'm not sure, you know, it, it was the, if you like, the, the European issue within Brexit. Um, that is the the cause of all these problems in the Conservative Party. I think it's what it's done to sort of destabilise the hierarchy, the leadership within the Conservative Party. So you've had this sort of ongoing rumbling leadership contest that's basically been going on since 2016. And also, you know, big fears about whether the Conservative Party can win. 
Now, I mean, adding to that, of course, you've got, you know, Nigel Farage um, coming in 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 2019 in the Brexit party, um, you know, talking a a big game about Brexit and about immigration once again. And and, and that helped destabilise the party uh, uh, as well. So, you know, it's multifactorial, if you like. Mm. Mm. I just wanted to pick up on something about Brexit, largely. Um, And by the way, I should have mentioned this at the start. Tim, if you don't know, I'm a member of the Labour Party. And when I was about 16 and I was trying to work out which party I wanted to join, because for some reason, as a politics student, I felt that I had to join a party. (laughs) Um, I was speaking and I was not ideologically driven at that time at all, as much as, you know, I would love to say, you know, I knew from the moment I came out of the womb that I wanted to be a Labour MP. (laughs) Um, But I spoke to my politics teacher at the time who was, by the way, a Conservative councillor. And he told me to join the Conservative Party because he said the Conservative Party is perpetually hungry for power and the people Mm. within it are constantly striving to get to the top. Mm. Now, this obviously contributes to a part of your argument in the lecture about the Conservative Party being regicidal. But do you think that in the pursuit of the Conservative Party being so regicidal and being so brutal, it's lost its hunger for power. Oh, that's a really good argument. No, I mean, I think actually that in some ways the kind of regicidal tendency within the Conservative Party reflects that hunger for power. Um, You know, the Conservative Party, you know, is very results oriented so that if a leader doesn't deliver, and that doesn't necessarily mean deliver on policy, but doesn't deliver popularity and a lead in the opinion polls, then, um, you know, the, the, the standing of that Conservative leader among their followers in Parliament and to some extent outside of Parliament drops pretty quickly. I mean, I think we need to be a little bit careful, though, when we talk about the Conservative Party being regicidal, because, uh, you know, although it's got this reputation for ruthlessness, I think it's to some extent relative in that the Labour Party certainly hasn't got that reputation and probably holds on to people too long. Um, you know, sometimes the Conservative Party can do the same. I mean, it, it shouldn't have taken the Conservative Party 775 days to to wake up to the fact that Ian Duncan Smith was absolutely hopeless as a leader. Mm-hmm. And nor, you can argue, should it really have taken the Conservative Party 1,080 days to get rid of Boris Johnson, given, you know, his, um, you know, the, the, the flaws and the difficulties in, into which he placed them. Um, so, you know, sometimes they 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 do hang on uh, a little bit too long. But I think, you know, generally speaking, um, it is a very leadership oriented party. I mean, if you look at the Conservative Party constitution, I mean, it says in there that essentially the kind of the policy direction of the party is up to the leader. <laughs> you know, there is there is no one else. There are no intervening bodies. Um, members have absolutely no say uh, in formulating party policy as they do in the Labour Party. Um, so, you know, given that the the party is so leadership oriented, I suppose it's inevitable in some ways that if the leader isn't delivering um, both on policy and in particular on popularity, then, you know, he or she is in big trouble. That's very, very interesting. And yeah, I, I'm almost trying to digest it all whilst also trying to move to the next question. But I wanted to talk about the next general election. And we'll come on to the discussion of when, the, whether they have any chance of winning or not 
Rory Stewart claims that now that they've changed the leader, mm. uh, they have a 10% chance of winning rather than zero. And I wanted to see if you would agree with that or not. But how much do you, to what extent do you think the culture war is going to play a pivotal role in the next general election? And this is something that I'm personally interested in because this is what my master's proposal is on. This is what my dissertation proposal is on. How much of the culture war issues that we that predominantly the media love to discuss uh, comes from imperial thought of mm. rule, rule Britannia, etc. And it's a it's actually a fallacy which a lot of conservative party thinkers have failed to address that Britain is no longer in the 1940s. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a degree of imperial um, hangover uh, within the Conservative Party, but then that reflects to some extent an imperial hangover in Britain uh, as a whole. I think there is a, a sense that Britain somehow um, deserves uh, a greater place in the world than perhaps its economy uh, and indeed even now its diplomacy uh, merits. Uh, we are, of course, you know, still a member of the, the you know, UN Security Council. We, we do have you know, nuclear weapons, which I guess you know, entitles us, some would say, to a seat at the top table, although, you know, Israel, um, Pakistan, India, etc. have them as well. So it's not an automatic uh, ticket. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to I- immigration, uh, I think, Probably the fact that we are an island nation um, contributes towards uh, you know, the, the suspicion of immigration um, in, in the UK. Although, you know, as you will know, um, that actually seems to have dropped a little bit since Brexit, partly, I think, because people feel that you know, we do now have control. Although that's been challenged, obviously, by those small boats landing on the, uh, the, the Kent coast. Uh, so uh, I, th- I think you know that does have something to do with it, our, our geography and our and our history. Um, I, I'd be a little bit careful, though. I think about associating Brexit necessarily with you know a, a kind of neo-imperial attitude uh, among the British. I think you know there were other factors um, that that were more important, in particular the fact that you know people had had a few hard years of austerity. So, you know, weren't feeling particularly positive. Um, you know, there was a migration crisis in Europe, which um, the UKIP managed to, you know, link uh, very closely to, to the EU and that, that frightened people. Um, so, I, I mean, I, 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 I kind of see what you're getting at there. And I think there is something to that, but I think we need to be careful not to, to overstate, um, you know, the, the sort of empire 2.0, idea yeah i'll i'll come i'll come in and say that because there is this you know constant you know attack on on the kind of the culture and you know i I remember that uh the speech that swella bravman did when she spoke about i think it was the woe karate and Mm. eating tofu and and stuff like that which to, to be honest i i kind of i I think there is like a an element of sort of fabrication within this in that I think quite often the culture war is something that's maybe overstated in terms of mm. something that the Conservative Party is trying to imply that there is. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think if you look at public opinion, actually, people really aren't that bothered about who goes to which bathroom or, you know, whether this statue is there or not. Um, or you know about 
so-called, you know, no platforming free speech in universities. That's not really anything that floats most ordinary voters' boats, but it, it really does get the goat of, you know, the Conservative Party um, supporting newspapers who who feel that, you know, their readers in particular, who of course are, you know, uh, older and more right wing, um, do do really care about. So I, I think, you know, in as much as it's electorally useful, I suppose it perhaps kind of mobilises the base um, to use that kind of US concept. But I'm not sure it travels quite as far, unless we're talking about immigration, as some Conservative MPs hope it might. Um, nevertheless, I think obviously it will be used um you know, in the run up to the next election, the long run up to the next election, because, I mean, what else have the Conservative Party got? Uh, it's not easy to see how they're going to persuade people on the economy. Mm. Uh, so they are going to need other issues, both to, you know, distract uh, and hopefully to try and hold together the electoral coalition that uh, they built back in 2019 between the so-called kind of red wall voters and, and uh, the so-called blue wall voters, although I'm a little bit skeptical about those categories as you can probably hear by me saying so called um so you know I, yeah I, th- I think we will see a lot of that and and again you know coming back to what i was saying about conservative mp's motivations i mean i'm afraid you know much as you know it, it might not be appropriate for the national interest suella braverman is thinking about the next leadership contest uh, and she is yeah and she's thinking you know well you know, who will the audience for that be? It probably will be Conservative Party members. Um, you know, Conservative Party members respond a little bit more to that kind of stuff than does the average voter. So it does her no harm to um, to, to push it. It isn't necessarily, though, the key to, to, to popularity with the Conservative Party membership, partly because actually immigration in particular is a double-edged sword. You know, if you if you talk a lot about solving the issue, but clearly you haven't, I think that can backfire on you. Uh, and if it were true that just talking tough on immigration, you know, earned you huge brownie points with the Conservative Party membership and therefore gave you a good chance in a leadership contest, then Priti Patel would be the leader of the Conservative Party and she isn't. Uh, so I think Suella Braverman might be barking up the wrong tree, as might um, Kemi, Kemi Badenoch as well. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I I completely agree about the fact that the culture war is overstated. And I think it's overstated largely because they don't really have much else to talk about. This is the one thing that they can shout and shout and shout. And they mm-hmm. might hear some cheers in the back of the room. You mentioned Suella Braverman possibly going for a leadership bid. You, you mentioned mm-hmm. Kemi Badnock possibly going for a, a leadership bid. Now, these are all dependent upon the fact that whether these people keep their seat. Now, this is James's point that he made in the lecture. Um, do you think that, well, of course, it's, it's most likely, but do you think that members that keep their seats, they're going to be the most influential on the Conservative Party moving forward, if there yeah. is even a Conservative Party moving forward? <laughs> well, I mean, I think there will be. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the Conservative Party is the you know oldest and most successful political party in the world for a reason. I think it is capable of, you know, picking itself up and dusting itself off and starting all over again. It's done this several times in its history. Uh, you know, when it appears to be dead and buried, it, it, it comes back. So uh, I certainly wouldn't write it off. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, there are some people who who might have leadership ambitions who might be worried about their seats. Um, I can't remember where Braverman is. Um, certainly, Badenoch would be 
I think, doing very, very well to lose her seat, given I think she's in Saffron Walden, isn't she? So, I mean, you know, she she is, is in a safe seat. And actually, you know, safe seats are very often the kind of, you know, sine qua non, if you like, of um, leadership contests, you know, that you, you very rarely get people um, becoming leaders in, in a seat that looks dodgy, although Boris Johnson perhaps might have been the exception uh, that, that proves a rule in that respect. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, how the, the Conservative Party goes forward, if it loses the next election, it really is all about who's in there. I mean, a, a good illustration of that would be back in 1997, when Michael Portillo, who everyone expected to take over after that election, lost his seat and therefore um, couldn't compete in the uh, in the leadership contest. And, you know, he, he missed his moment. Mm, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to, because I'm conscious of, uh, of of time. I just kind of wanted to uh, steer us towards uh, the latter end of uh, sort of some of our questions, which mm. was uh, to do. You know, quite a lot of our listeners are sort of uh, young people, either university, maybe a little bit younger, uh, and would be quite interested to hear. You know, some of about some of your public engagement. Obviously, you do a lot of work with uh, media. You do the Myland Institute, of course, mm. and. Um, so our first question is that what is it like at uh, Kartik rubbing shoulders with uh, heavyweight politicians? Uh, <laughs> I, I can I can imagine, uh, especially on things like Newsnight, it's uh, it, it can prove to be quite challenging sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's interesting. I mean, I don't know how much I do rub shoulders with them really. I mean, very often I'm I'm called on by media to you know say something as a sort of talking head on my own I don't really get into the kind of debate programs and, and would run a mile if I was ever invited I must admit because uh, it always amazes me how people are prepared and so you know I've got a couple of very good friends who do it um, go on question time um, you know and, and have an opinion on almost everything mm. um, I'm afraid I, I haven't got an opinion on almost everything so, yeah, I've been on question time it's 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 not worth it yeah. Yeah. yeah so I would I would actually find it quite difficult uh, on occasions to, to, to do that um I mean, I think there's no substitute for when you're doing research. If you can possibly talk to the people uh, that you are writing about, uh, that's very useful. Um, and if you can't do that, obviously, you know, engaging with, you know, what they do and say in the media is a, a sort of secondhand uh, way uh, of doing it. I mean, certainly, for example, for, for this book, and particularly for the general election book, the, the general election of 2019, I mean, some of the interviews we did for that were really, really useful. But actually, very often, um, you're, you're better off talking to, as it were, the backroom boys and girls than you are the, the politicians themselves, because the politicians are so practiced, if you like. Um, that, you know, you will get the answer you expect. Now, sometimes that's quite useful because, you know, you can say you talk to them and you can quote them or whatever. But actually, if you if you really want to know, you know, about the mechanics of an election campaign, very often talking to the, you know, the campaign manager um, or director of campaigns you know, and, and talking to, you know, some of the pollsters uh, involved with the party uh, or, you know, talking to, you know, the, the CEO, for example, of the, uh, the Conservative Party and indeed the equivalent of the Labour Party General Secretary, you know, that that that's really, really uh, more useful. So, uh, I mean, you know, it, it, it's fun, um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, very often, um, you know, politicians, uh, as I say, are kind of media trained and, you know, will, as I say, you know, give you the answer that, that you expect, which... 
you know, it is it is useful in some ways, but not useful in others. Yeah, and I suppose that's been somewhat exemplified by the uh, performance of Matt Hancock on I'm a Celeb, <laughs> uh, which uh, yeah. I, I regrettably have been watching uh, <laughs> with quite a close eye. Um, but I'll, I'll let Kartik on to the next question. Yeah, thankfully, I, I called James at 9.15 yesterday, so he didn't get to watch most of I'm a Celeb, <laughs> oh, which is probably why he sounds quite sane today. <laughs> um, but my question is largely addressed to our listeners and also yeah. to you, yeah. basically, why should young people go into politics? Since it can be so divisive, the hours seem quite long. Uh, the pay is not great most of the time, unless you're an MP or the prime minister. Uh, now, I'm painting quite a grim picture, but and you really do not need to convince us, considering we've set up our own podcast and we're speaking to you. <laughs> but what would you say to your students who may be doubtful about a career in politics? Well, one thing is that obviously politics matters. I mean, I don't buy the idea that all the parties are the same, for example. I don't buy the idea that you can't do anything to improve society or indeed to make it worse on occasions. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's fairly clear that the decisions that politicians make um, do have you know real world implications. Uh, and so if, you know, some of um, what goes on in the world uh, frustrates you or a- angers you, um, then clearly, you know, you're um, perhaps one of those people who might be able to do something about that and therefore put yourself um, forward. But as you say, I mean, it is, you know, a pretty difficult world, I think, uh, you know, particularly, I think, for uh, minorities and particularly for women. If you look at the amount of, you know, social media abuse, you know, it's much greater uh, for those groups than it is for, um, you know, white male middle-class MPs, but it's pretty bad for them as well. So I I guess you have to have a pretty um, thick skin. I I think one thing that worries me as well is that it's clearly pretty difficult for anybody from a quote-unquote, you know, working-class, ordinary, deprived background to get into um, politics at the elite level. If you look at uh, the composition of the House of Commons, um, you know, there, there are very few people who come from you know a background of, of manual labour, uh, for example, that's almost disappeared uh, in the House of Commons, uh, and I think that you know is a real problem because uh, you know some voters will look at the House of Commons, will look at um, MPs if they bother paying any attention at all, and just see no one who looks and sounds um, like them. I mean, I, I think that in a way is why Angela Rayner is a good thing. Um, because, you know, she's a woman from a working class background who quite a lot of people, presumably from the same background, will be able to identify uh, with. And that, that's that's no bad thing. I, I mean, I think one of the other problems for politics, obviously, is that, you know, and if you don't want to be an MP, then you have to think about the other things that you could do. One thing is obviously becoming a, a, an MP's assistant in Parliament, you know, eventually rising to be, you know, some sort of chief of staff role or a research role. And as you know, at Queen Mary, we have a a placement program in in Parliament. Uh, You know, I think that's a useful way of getting into it. But even then, there's no real career structure uh, there. You know, there isn't a kind of obvious progression uh, up up a ladder. So what people often do is do that for a bit and then go into public affairs or maybe even journalism. But journalism, I think, very, very difficult to get into. But public affairs is a, you know, sort of real burgeoning, uh, area, you know, these are basically lobbyists. You might put, you might say, um, you know, that is a, a big industry now, uh, and that's one way that people can make a difference to politics, even if you know, perhaps it's if you like behind the scenes uh, rather than 
than front of house. But I certainly wouldn't want to discourage anyone uh, becoming an MP. I mean, I wouldn't want to do it myself because I, I think I'd be, you know, absolutely useless at it. But uh, I think if you, you know, you've got a thick skin uh, and you feel strongly about stuff, then, you know, go for it by all means. I think you've answered uh, the question that I had underneath about what tips would you give them? Um, I want to sort of, before we end, um, we've got approximately about 10 minutes left. I wanted to ask you about sort of the future general elections Mm. election that's coming up. Mm. Um, Well, it's not actually coming up. We think it's coming up. Um, I, as a Labour member, hope it's coming up. Um, (laughs) I bet you bloody do right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mentioned the 10% uh, quote by Rory Stewart. Do you mm. think the Conservatives could win the next general election? Well, I mean, I think anything's possible. I mean, prediction is a mugs game, as uh, I always say. Um, that doesn't necessarily stop me doing it, but um, <laughs> uh, uh, to, to my cost on occasion. Um, but, I mean, I think it will be very difficult for them to come back. Uh, let's be honest. I mean, you know, clearly Liz Truss absolutely cratered uh, their opinion poll rating, but it was pretty bad before she came along. Um, so, you know, hers was the, you know, the in, in some senses, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, I, I can't for the life of me remember a situation since 1945 where a party has been so far behind and managed to come back, particularly when they're presiding over, um, you know, a, a very, very bleak, Uh, economic situation now they can say oh this is a recession made in russia but quite frankly um people aren't going to buy that they Mm. tend to blame the government um for the economic situation um you know despite the fact that some people think of us as a kind of neoliberal country most most people regard the government having some responsibility for um what goes on in in the economy so if if you think about where they are now and what the economy looks like uh i think it's going to be um, pretty difficult. On the other hand, um, you know, they will be able perhaps to argue that, you know, the economy is growing again by the end of 2024. Uh, they might be able to say, you know, run the argument as they have before. Don't let Labour ruin it. Um, you know, things are quite bad now, but if you put Labour in, it will be chaos. Your taxes will go up. Chaos with band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and then point to the whole sort of SNP um, uh, you coalition. Know, a coalition of yeah. chaos, all that kind of thing. And and at the moment, anyway, Rishi Sunak, although he hasn't had a huge bounce, and certainly any bounce he, he's had doesn't seem to have done the Conservative Party uh, as much good as perhaps some people hoped, uh, is still seen as the, you know, the, the, the better prime minister by the majority, uh, or, or at least by a plurality of people. Um, so, yeah, I think that probably reflects the fact that he is the prime minister <laughs> rather yeah. than, uh, you know, what it necessarily says about a matchup between him, him and, uh, and Keir Starmer. But then when you look at Keir Starmer, um, I mean, in many ways, he's quite impressive, particularly what he's managed to do to, you know, bring the Labour Party back from the dead, as it were. Um, but he's not, you know, the inspiring, charismatic figure that, you know, people... Um, uh, you know, voted for, for example, when they, when they voted for Tony Blair in 1997. I know Tony Blair's got a very bad reputation now, particularly with people on the left. But if you were around at the time, I mean, the guy was incredibly popular and incredibly inspiring for a lot of people. So, you know, I think that made a difference. And in as much as, you know, leaders play an important part in people's voting calculation, then, you know, if, if Rishi Sunak continues to be seen as the better bet 
you know, than, than Keir Starmer, that might make a difference. But but again, leaders aren't the be all and end all. I mean, people perhaps sometimes forget that Jim Callaghan back in the 1970s was actually more popular than Margaret Thatcher, but Labour still lost the election in, in 1979. So, you know, it's it's not guaranteed, even if you've got the most popular leader. So, you know, I, that's a long uh, rambling answer to your question. And I guess my guess would be, no, they can't win. Um, the the election now, but uh, they can certainly, I think, make the difference between you know getting um, you know well into the the two hundred um, seats and you know hovering around two hundred or even dipping underneath that, uh, you know, which would be very very difficult to come back on. The other thing to remember is, of course, Labour lost really really badly in twenty nineteen, and they need a massive swing, you know, and a, a literally a kind of unprecedented swing to be able to um, win a majority in, in the House of Commons. And we, we can't forget that, I think. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting you mentioned uh, Tony Blair, because I, I, like, aside from sort of like characteristics in terms of leadership, it is very mm. resonant in terms of the Conservative Party having to go, yeah, you know what, we, we've there's somebody else, there's another party that seems to be in a better place than us. We're going to take some time away rebuild and that's exactly what they did they rebuilt and in 2010 you know they yeah but it took them an awfully long time didn't it and i think that's the Mm. problem in the in the sense that you know people sometimes say you know well some conservative mps are now pining for opposition where they can sort themselves out well what i would say that is good luck with that you know Mm. uh, it it doesn't always go very well Uh, and, and many labor supporters i think were very frustrated by what happened in 2010 when essentially you know, some Labour uh, negotiators in those coalition negotiations almost gave up too easily, really, um, you know, thinking, well, we've been in power for some time. It's probably time for a change. We're exhausted. You know, we can build back in opposition. I mean, the moment you, you know, you let go of government, um, you know, you, you, I think, are in big trouble. And, you know, you need to cling on to it with your fingernails if you can. And of course, I'm sure that the Conservative Party, you know, will do that if it, if it, you know, has any chance at all. The problem for the Conservative Party, of course, is it doesn't have any obvious allies. So if we do get into a hung Parliament situation, what's it going to do? Rely on the DUP again? Well, I might do that, but that's difficult. But that literally is their only option, and no other party is going to do deal with the Conservative Party. So they either have to win outright, or it's going to be very, very difficult. My funny Labour head is saying, well, do you, do you know what? If, if, you, if you're going to vote for the Conservatives, you're voting for a Conservative SNP coalition. That's what we should campaign <laughs> on. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, th- those were largely all of my questions. Um, do you think we'll have an early general election? And another question, actually, which has just come upon me, yeah. is in the context of Keir Starmer um, leading a more united Labour Party, but not being as liked as Rishi Sunak as uh, a prime minister Mm. and Rishi Sunak being more liked as a prime minister, but leading a relatively divided party. Um, Do you think Lib Dems could make a resurgence? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, I think um, uh, I'm doing a talk actually this weekend uh, about the, the blue wall. And in some ways you, you could argue that the, um, you know, Labour resurgence is a bit of a problem for the Lib Dems because mm-hmm. <laughs> it perhaps means that some people who might otherwise have voted Lib Dem tactically will vote for Labour. Uh, I don't think in the end that actually that will make much difference um, because 
generally speaking, Labour and the Lib Dems aren't in competition with each other in many seats. And if you look at the history, um, you will find that normally when Labour does well, um, the Lib Dems uh, do quite well uh, and vice versa. It's not always true, but, you know, often it is it is true. So um, and I think there is a lot of opportunity for, for tactical voting. And therefore, I think that will favour uh, the Lib Dems because they are in a much better position in some of the southern seats, especially those seats that voted Remain. Um, than the Labour could possibly be. And they will throw, as we know, absolutely everything at those seats. And if they can win in, you know, North Shropshire, if they can win in Tiverton, if they can win in Chesham and Amersham, um, you know, they, they they can win many of those seats. But of course, there's always a difference between by-elections and, uh, and general elections. So I certainly wouldn't write um, the Lib Dems off at all. And, you know, they would do Labour a big favour if they did manage to nick some of those seats off the Conservatives. Mm, we'll have to we'll have to see on that but um yeah thank you so much for for answering our questions and for for being here today i strongly suggest for our listeners uh in i believe it's march next year uh, that's a terribly long lead time with these um yeah Uh, you know i'm hoping that they don't replace rishi sunak because uh we've already had to make a late substitution (laughs) on the cover (laughs) and i just don't think we've got room for another leader on there so i mean touch wood for for me everybody right yeah, and in I, the I, meantime, should we read Harry Cole's book? <laughs> well, I've read Harry and James's book um, because I was kind of furiously trying to finish my own and thinking that there would be some nuggets in there. I mean, yeah, it's got lots of intriguing nuggets about um, Liz Truss. But I mean, again, in, in some ways, it reinforced, I think, what I was saying about the role of ambition in, in the party. Uh, you know, this is a woman who was almost completely consumed, I think, by her desire to become leader of the Conservative Party in the last, you know, three, four years uh, and really acted accordingly. And I think if when you read Harry and, and Harry's book, James' book, that, you know, you can you can really see that, um, you know, everything she did um, was directed towards that one end, even if it meant in policy terms doing some really stupid things, as we've seen, for example, with George Eustace's criticisms of the trade agreement with Australia, um, essentially, you know, trying to get that done so she could burnish her Brexiteer essentials and, in his view anyway, selling out, you know, farmers in the UK in order to do it. Absolutely. But um, but yeah, no, but thank you very much uh, for coming onto the podcast uh, this week, Tim. And thank you very much, listeners, uh, for listening to this. Uh, we'll be back next week where I think we'll likely be doing some budget analysis and also talking about uh, uh, Trump's presidential bid, which rudely woke me up at about two o'clock in the morning the other day. So um, so thank you very much uh, for listening. My name's James Table. And my name's Kartik Sawney. And we'll see you next week on Politics on Draft. Thank you. Bye.